0: An announcement from Microsoft's Office 365 team today, Wes, for Linux. Microsoft Teams, their Slack competitor, is officially here. And I'm going to go so far as to say, early prediction, so I'm claiming this one. It's already on my list.
1: What? This is a beachhead for Office on Linux. Oh, you think so? The rest Mm -hmm. is going to follow suit. I do. It's been interesting, you know, I mean, there was an open support issue since Teams launched for Linux. And for a long time, it, it didn't look like it was going to happen. There just wasn't interest. No, it's finally here. Although you'll have to go like three directory levels deep to find it. If you go to
0: teams.microsoft.com/download, they do have a more friendly version. But if you get where Wes got linked to, he's like browsing through their web directory that was from one of their pages. They know, linked it to me. I, I know. I know. Um, I, nobody else in the world, except for existing Office 365 users, was looking for this. But you know, when if you want something besides Slack, there's some really great open
1: source alternatives. However. A lot of Office 365 users. Right, and uh, Teams gets bundled in there, so of course you probably have to use it. And now there's another Electron app you can use on your Linux desktop. Yes, oh man. Boy, wasn't
0: that on my wish list. Um, so you, while you were spelunking in web directories, I was just installing it from the AUR because God bless the AUR, it just showed up immediately. Nice. <laughs> All right. Mm. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to use Teams, though. Come on, come on. I'm not using Teams. If anything, I'm going to Mattermost next. Yeah, but the people who use Teams
1: don't get to choose. Hello, friends, and
0: welcome into the Unplugged program. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. I've Got a smile today because <laughs> this is one of those episodes where Wes and Chris are going to do something you shouldn't try at home. Don't follow along. Don't do what we do this week. We're busting a stereotype. Fedora worked so well. It blew my mind how great it was as a server OS and all the stereotypes say don't run Fedora as right. a server. So we thought, well, let's take that a little bit further and let's replace our highly critical, perfectly functional Fedora server with an Archbox and report back what the process is like to migrate a live in-production server from Fedora to Arch, lessons we learned, and then truly what we think of it as a server platform, and some of the things we're doing to safeguard the fact that it is a rolling distribution.
1: I mean, what could go wrong?
0: We're doing this so you don't have to. (laughs) You're welcome. this I'm really not kidding. This box is critically important to us. Um, but we really wanted to test the stereotype after having really good success with Fedora. We thought we got to replace this Fedora 30 install either with Fedora 31 or CentOS. So let's go to Arch. <laughs> We've come a long way from Freenas. Yeah. Yeah, we really have. Um, so, uh, we'll tell you about that in a little bit, but before we go there, we do have some community news to get into. Like, some of this is down the road, maybe going to happen prediction stuff. Like, we don't really know. So let's start with some of those far out predictions. NVIDIA looks to have some sort of open source driver announcement just around the corner. Michael Arbel's hot to the trot with this one over at Pharonix. He says, start looking forward to March when NVIDIA looks to have some sort of open source driver initiative to announce, which is likely contributing more to Navu. He was tipped off by a Ferronics reader about the, a GTC session that's happening at GTC 2020 by NVIDIA. Now, the engineer from NVIDIA, John Hubbard, is running a talk titled
1: Open Source, Linux Kernel, and NVIDIA. GTC, for the unaware, is the GPU Technology Conference. And boy, does that talk have an interesting abstract. Here it is. We'll report up-to-the-minute developments on NVIDIA's status and activities and possibly depending on last minute developments a few future plans and directions regarding our contributions to the linux kernel supporting novu including signed firmware behavior documentation and patches and nvidia kernel drivers whoa okay there's
0: a lot in there signed firmware behavior is huge documentation would be ginormous but patches to the actual upstream projects is mind blowing that is mind blowing Did- there's some change inside Nvidia. Perhaps they've noticed that AMD is kicking some ass these days. So you're, you're going to have to wait till towards the end of March because GTC 2020 runs from the 23rd to the 26th of March in San Jose. You're
1: going to go, Wes? With- <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I know you're a big gamer. <laughs> I don't think I'll make it, but I will be eagerly awaiting this news. Hopefully,
0: Michael Larbo will make it down there. And- He'll give us a report back. All right, and then one other kind of far out in the future community news, but one we are so dang excited about. Your co-host and buddy Jim Salter over at Ars Technica writes that the WireGuard VPN is one step closer to mainstream adoption. This is all coming from the Linux network stack maintainer David Miller, who committed the WireGuard VPN project to the Linux kernel's NetNext source tree. He maintains both the Net and the NetNext source trees, which govern the current implementations of the Linux kernel's networking stack and,
1: of course, the future one. Yeah, NetNext gets pulled into the new Linux kernel during its two-week merge window, where it becomes Net. With WireGuard already a part of NetNext, this means that, barring unexpected issues, and there's always time for those, there should be a Linux kernel 5.6 release candidate with built-in WireGuard in early 2020. Oh, 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 just excuse me, Wes, just going to do a little happy dance. Something tells me we're going to be trying those release candidates when the time comes. Now, do take uh, a little bit of salt with this one. I mean, yeah, the the kernel community does what they want. The maintainers have their own priorities and schedules, and we'll see what happens.
0: We've heard this song before, but we did just recently see the required encryption bits land. We covered that recently. So this is sort of the next required piece. Now, there's kind of an unfortunate possibility on the timing here, because if I'm doing my time math right, and Jim points this out in the
1: article, this is probably going to land after Ubuntu 2004, the next big LTS. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I imagine there'll be long timelines to see it get in other sort of LTS releases like RHEL. But WireGuard founder and main developer Jason Donfeld offered to do a bunch of the work backporting WireGuard to earlier Ubuntu kernels directly. (laughs) Jason. That's great. That is. We've uh, had very brief exchanges with Jason in the past, and he seems very passionate about this. Oh yeah, obviously cares a lot and has put in a ton of work promoting WireGuard to get it where it is. I hope they take him up on that. You know, he also teased that a WireGuard 1.0 is on the horizon. Well, what? I know. Wow. Already. How can it get better than it is? You know, that's a
0: good thing to say, too. Like, if you could have that land right before 5.6, then you're including 1.0. Right, we've, we've
1: got here, a, like, a nice, stable, maintained VPN. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mr. Brent, you just recently had Adventures in WireGuard land.
2: Yeah, I. it's been on my docket for about, I don't know, six months. Wes, I've been asking you for for, like, hey, Wes, when you're ready, if I go ask you, would you help me?
1: And it turns out you didn't even need it.
2: Well, it turns out I am more capable of things than I think I am. So this morning I thought, ah, I got a pretty wide open docket and WireGuard seems like the best thing to do in the morning. So dove right in and it was super smooth.
1: What are you using it for? I mean, are you replacing an existing VPN?
2: Yeah, my idea was I'm currently using private internet access just to give me, you know, as as some people may have picked up, I travel quite a bit. So it gives me some extra protection basically everywhere. Uh, and so that's been playing fairly nice with my phones and computers. But, you know, it's they just got sold recently, I believe. Yep. And yep. Uh, if yep. the rumors are true. Yeah, they are. And also it's the apps kind of, they're buggy and they're not uh, native. I don't like them. So I thought, okay, WireGuard is a really, seems to make sense. You guys have been telling me it's super stable. So uh, jumped in, had to learn a few things, but there's some great tutorials there and uh, yeah, just spun up a, a VPS on our trusty DigitalOcean and uh, got it configured pretty easily actually. And uh, it's working pretty good.
0: How proud are you of Brent right now? Oh, yeah. Amazing. Super proud of you, Brent. Good for you. No thanks. And did you find any particular documentation useful or any kind of tips or tricks you could pass along to people that uh, are also kind of starting from zero?
2: Yeah, I think my setup is wonderfully simple. Uh, All I'm trying to do is have a kind of a dumb uh, server out there that's just waiting for me to connect to it. So it's not doing much fancy stuff, but maybe that's a good place to start. Absolutely. So I will share uh, in the IRC. Here the tutorial that I used, and it just kind of like worked. It was super simple, very straightforward, great, written in a nice way that allows you to learn along the way, which is the whole idea.
1: Excellent. Will you grab that for the show notes, Mr. Payne? I sure will, and it's great that it's already pretty easy, and once it's in the kernel, it'll be even easier than that. Yeah, that's the
0: thing. As Part of that setup is just getting it installed right now and figuring out how you're going to do that. Um, we just went through the installation process last night ourselves, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. Really hope that uh, they do take Jason up on that offer to backport it to um, the LTS because, like you kind of implied there, Wes, there's also the question of the RHEL release cycle. Um, RHEL is currently using, the current version of RHEL is using the 4.18 kernel, which is already nine months old, and they tend to stick with that for quite a while. Yes. Even
1: that said... It's pretty straightforward to get going, even on a system that doesn't have it baked in. Right. It's not a big module to load. No. It's very easy to build. And it's one of the better behaved DKMS modules I've ever used. So uh, this next story kind of made me smile this morning because it
0: felt like the good old days of using a Linux distro. I I knew that Manjaro, which I've been running on a couple of my workstations, had an update coming. They've been kind of teasing it on Twitter. But I didn't know when it was going to land. And so I, as I always like to do, because I think it's the way to keep an art system running great, is I decided I'd check my packages this morning. Just do a, you know, synchronize right. it's my mirror. It's a show day where you need your workstation to work, so you better <laughs> update
1: it. You're right. I really am a dummy, aren't I? I really am dumb. I'm so dumb. I think you're just excited. You know, you you have this great little workstation going and you're like, oh, there's probably new
0: packages. You know what it is, is I just love the way it all looks on the uh, retro CRT, cool retro CRT terminal. And Pacman's so pretty. Yeah. So anyways, I'm just synchronizing my mirrors and I notice it's I'm getting like 30K a second from the mirror. It's just going really slow. And I'm like, oh, oh. Must be a big release day because that's how this works. And um, sure enough, I check on Twitter and a brand new stable release of Manjaro is out. 525 packages needed updating on my system. Oh, boy. It includes the new 5.4 LTS kernel and a new version of... Remember I was trying to tell you Manjaro has this uh, package manager that's like unique to them? Mm-hmm. Pamac? Pamac, Pamac, Yeah. New version of that, but as well as updated desktops, and um, just loving, loving it so far. I wasn't sure how the first update experience would be like, but this was great. It was really kind of fun. I, oh, my mirrors are running slow, and my first thought was, let's go check Twitter and say, "Hey,
1: look, a new release." Right. I mean, it's
0: a little bit of different difference there if you're used to Arch because it's,
1: I mean, not not quite yeah. rolling,
0: right? Right. Right. Yeah, it's just sort of fun to have uh, sort of like moments where like there's a bunch of things, uh, but it's not a complete. It's a huge mini thing. new fedora release. It's mini, but yeah, It's all a mini. the time. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to put it. It's a little mini update, and I I really. Um, I really think they did a pretty good job of this one. Haven't actually rebooted yet, though, so I'll reserve oh, my... Oh, come on. That's the real test. you <laughs> know. I was like, you know, I can... kick the tires on the new kernel. Well, now that we have the show at the newer time, I was like, I got to run down there and do the show. I, I didn't have a half hour. So you should so... have
1: rebooted it and then would we'll check at the
0: end of the show. Yeah. I could run up there. <clears throat> should I try it? Should I try running up there during, like, one of our, like, clips or something and <laughs> See? <laughs> I don't know.
1: I hope it works because I've really fallen in love with that workstation. Well, actually, you know, we've got a, a tip later on in the show that maybe oh, yeah. you should set up on that workstation and then you wouldn't be so worried. You're right. I totally could set it up on that workstation. Oh, Wes
0: Payne, you are clever. We should. We will definitely be talking about that. But before we get into all of that, I want to mention, speaking of how much I love my dang Plasma desktop... We had ourselves the making plasma brilliant live stream on Friday and I'm am pretty happy to say I think it went decent. We had a good attendance, the mumble room was popping. Um, the video after the fact has already been posted and got a lot of views. I, relatively I think to the what I expected went well
1: is there was just more stuff than we could possibly talk about and there was never we weren't hunting for content because there's so much to do in plasma. Nailed it right at the hour mark. Still got the live stream. uh, uh, And there's like six or seven topics we just couldn't go into. I got that internal clock,
0: pow, right there. Um, So it's up now. If you are interested in what I do to beautify and make my Plasma desktop, like I say in the video, from basic to brilliant, that link will be in the show notes at linuxunplugged.com slash 331. And it's up on the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash broadcasting. And uh, you could just jump in if you want. At the very beginning, I kind of tell you, what to expect. So, if you just want to know how to tweak your fonts or tweak console, you can just jump to that. Also, Brent just keeps hitting it out of the park. Brunch with Brent and Alan Pope. Mister Popey sits down with Brent for a fantastic brunch. Is there anything you want to tease? I haven't had a chance to listen yet because it just came out this morning.
2: Oh, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. Both of us at the end of the conversation went, "Geez, that went in a bunch of directions we never expected." So uh, I, <laughs> that's usually the sign of a great brunch with Brent. I didn't know this about Poppy, but he's uh, he's a very well practiced fuzzy tester, and uh, he tells that <laughs> he tells yeah. a little bit about that his adventures there. So it's a pretty good one.
0: You get some good poppy flavor. I can tell just by looking at the links. There's some good poppy flavor that comes through on this one. Um, and, you know, we were just sitting around here and said, you know, if there's just one thing we need is Popey on more podcasts. So he's on the Ubuntu podcast. He's on the user podcast. We need him on more podcasts. So brunch with Brent, show slash 38. Maybe someday he'll come back to love. <laughs> oh, that's right. What the heck? I forgot him. I remember. Remember that, Wes? Wes Linux- remembers. Wes remembers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was really great. So if you've been missing yourself, some Popey. Also, there was recently one with Wimpy, too. I see. I see how it is. Now they got time for brunch. Sorry, guys. I'm, I'm, t- <laughs> I'm taking all the... <laughs> at least all the Europeans. No, actually, you know, I've known these guys for a long time. And I I know that just by listening to Wimpy's, I knew I, lear- I learned stuff about Wimpy. So I know I'll learn stuff about Popey, too. So it's really great. Um, also, I am so happy to say that our Telegram channel has really leveled up recently lots of great conversations going all the time and thanks to the work of Cheese Bacon and others we've got some good spam prevention in there now so it's a really nice good clean chat at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram
1: yeah there's really a fun conversation going on there almost all of the time pretty much all
0: the time because there's folks from all different time zones in there Uh, but you also see the host popping in there throughout the day as well as uh, network announcements so if you've if you felt like you want to take the conversation beyond just the download, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. Even sometimes that Wes Payne's in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Happens. All right, Wes. So here we were with a perfectly functional Fedora 30 workstation server. Which is even funny to say. Actually, well, we might have used the net install server, yeah. So it might have been the server at at the end of the day. All right, fine, fair enough. There wasn't a GUI installed, but it was still Fedora. I think we had a workstation USB drive going, though, to troubleshoot. Did you think I was crazy when we picked Fedora coming from FreeNAS? So the background there is we were running FreeNAS. We had a whole ZFS array that Alan Jude set up for us.
1: But we found FreeNAS to be limiting, so we went to Fedora. I mean, I'd say limiting is just that it didn't work for our use case. We needed less of appliance because we could both, we wanted to manage the server a little more interactively, and we just weren't that familiar with FreeNAS or FreeBSD.
0: Yeah, and we also wanted to take advantage of being able to run things from the command lines for testing for the show and setting up and spinning up things that are a little more cutting edge that maybe there wouldn't be a pre-cut something for FreeNAS. I mean, more Linux
1: nerds. That's what we do. And honestly, we just wanted a Linux system. I would have gone Ubuntu LTS probably myself. But it didn't seem crazy. One of the first servers I ever set up when I was starting to make the transition from playing with Linux on my little laptop to like, oh, okay, I'm going to try this on the server. It was like Fedora, I don't know, it was like 14, 15, somewhere in that era. And it was a fantastic server. So I knew it could work. For a limited time, though, is usually the concern. Yeah, I mean, I think I had that thing for a year or two at most, and yeah. I wasn't current on it. And updates. it's a lot
0: of updates. It is a lot of updates. That is something we had to deal with, which Arch will be the same way, is there was sometimes updates that would then break things like our ZFS support momentarily.
1: We are running a lot of tree modules relative to
0: Wireguard, most
2: servers.
1: ZFS to just name a couple
0: of really critical ones and that was a bit of a struggle although not insurmountable but it did cause probably one outage in
1: total but you know one one something and I think we sort of found that while we liked fedora there was a lot going on that we appreciated it was almost it's almost Too complicated, too ready for the enterprise, if I'm allowed to use that phrase, because there were just a lot of systems in place for good reason that you would want and that were well configured, but that we just didn't need in our tiny server use case here in the studio.
0: But end result was we were very, very happy with Fedora, and we're very much considering because of that going with CentOS 8 or CentOS 8 Stream, um, and then just loading ZFS support into that. However, we we got talking about this from a kind of like a philosophical standpoint and we realized this is something that we have an opportunity to kind of try and maybe bust a myth here on the show. We're we we are the Linux Unplugged Mythbusters because we have a theory. And that theory goes that if you were to build a minimum viable Linux server or another way to put it is just enough Linux so the system boots and launches containered applications. And it really does almost nothing else. Like how Right, I mean it might, I mean make it me into some of those
1: container specific distributions. And we're not going that far cuz we, you know, we still kind of want all of our usual tools. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. we go a little bit further cuz we install things like netdata and samba on the host system. But I think our base install is still well under a gig. It's it's a very minimal Linux install. Very few things are running. And we wanted something that was everything was off by default and what we turn on incrementally is all that's running with all the other functionality provided by applications and containers that are divorced from the host operating system. That was our theory. And we thought, well, in these conditions, if we could come up with a belt and suspenders approach to running Arch, it would probably be a viable server platform. Right. I mean, we're both familiar with Arch, have run it many times. And I think we nailed it. So I'll tell you what our belt and suspender was as we go here, because I think you're going to like this. But I first want to start... <laughs> I want to set the scene. I didn't know exactly how Wes planned to pull this off. Because here we are. We have a Fedora 30 box. It's in production. We've set an evening aside with the team. Hey, this thing's going to be offline for a couple of hours. <laughs> we weren't clear on that one. <laughs> <laughs> we're like six hours, but we'll get to that. Um, but I didn't exactly know how Wes was going to accomplish this. So uh, I was delighted to learn exactly how we were going to install Arch On top of this existing Fedora instance. Wes Payne has decided the best way to load Arch Linux on our server is to boot with an Ubuntu thumb drive.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Ubuntu is just a reliable operating system. Why not use it to install Arch? You get a GUI and everything. (laughs) It's great. And I'd just like to point out that the Arch install scripts are packaged in the Ubuntu repository, so it couldn't be easier. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's, that's
0: really cool. Okay, so we've got the thumb drive. We've done a lot of the preliminary, so go ahead and fire it up. We've, we've done some backups. We've exported the ZFS pool. We've shut down the Docker containers. We're going to do a, a, one more export just to make sure everything's nice and clean of the ZFS pool. But job one now will be to boot off of this Ubuntu thumb drive and create an arch-to-root environment. So these Arch install scripts, they're in the Ubuntu Universe repo, so you got to turn on the Universe repo, but what what is this? Is is this some sort of, like, backdoor way to get Arch on an Ubuntu system?
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so really it's just the um, minimal tools that, you know, the Arch team has written to help aid you in in the install. Things like Arch to root or packstrap. Just a little, you know, a few utilities that can get things up and running, or like a gen FSTab, the handy tool to, to make you an fs tab entry. Yes, that was really nice. And most of them, I mean, they just need sort of the, the core Unix tools, all the stuff you would get in core utils. So that was fun, because I was really surprised
0: to see that. And um, it was great, since uh, it supported all of our hardware, including uh, the ZFS disks, and we of course had to struggle a little bit because it's a server, it's a super micro system so it doesn't have a very fancy graphics card but we managed to get that figured out by just going into safe graphics mode and then it was off to the races and time to destroy some data We're up and running in Ubuntu safe graphics mode and Wes was pretty clever choosing 1910 because it supports ZFS automatically so that Mm -hmm. was really nice and we've already made the drastic step of wiping out the partitions and Wes is currently in the process of creating new ones we're doing a really simple layout the host drive will be ButterFS, the storage array is ZFS, so we are doing a ButterZFS hybrid arch install <laughs> we'll explain more about that there we go, that's our three simple partitions have you, wiped, have you uh, written it to the disk yet?
1: no, not yet, are we ready?
0: <laughs> let's do it, there's no turning back now go, okay. <laughs> I didn't give you much notice. There was no, no time for you to say wait. <laughs> you were just like, well, you were just ready to go. I had my finger hovering over the keyboard. You know, it's too, it's cold out there because this is Pacific Northwest. Yeah, and, I didn't have
1: the most dexterity.
0: No, and it's a cold garage. I mean data center. Um, so I, I thought this would be kind of fun to just talk about on the show for a moment. How about a hybrid Arch file server that's ButterFS on the OS disk and ZFS on the data disk? Radical The further we got into this setup, the more I love it And I think this is how I'm doing my workstation setups from now on too And it really kind of comes down to how you set up the sub-volumes For that belt and suspenders approach I was talking about That's right Okay, so we've done a simple disk layout But inside that simple disk layout We've created a series of
1: ButterFS sub-volumes Can you give us a quick rundown? Well, we'd like the ability to take snapshots, considering we're installing Arch here. Down the road, some packages may go wrong. And therefore, we've got a root sub-volume. And then we're also going to have some data stored under the home partition, maybe some of our Docker setup or other configuration. And we'd like that at probably a different cadence, right? We might integrate snapshots of the root file system with the package manager or perhaps on a daily cadence and want something different for home. So we've got those separate. And then we've actually got a totally separate boot partition that we can take snapshots of as well. I'm really looking forward to experimenting with integrating
0: snapshots into Pac-Man. So before and after Pac-Man actions, we do a pre and post snapshot. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But So we just got done setting up those sub-volumes that will enable that flexibility once the system's up and running.
1: Now we got to get them mounted and cheroot inside.
0: Now we should probably mention right here, so that way we avoid confusion. Later we decided it would
1: probably be better to actually have slash boot. Right, once we um, invested a little more in some of the tooling, we'll talk about, we realized it just made more sense to do it that way. Yeah. But it, it's a flexible setup, and it wasn't much work to change. Yeah, um, and this is great because, and we'll have a link to the
0: wrappers let you do this, but this is great because it lets you have a automated system that will take a complete snapshot before a package action and after, much like ZUSA does, but for Pac-Man. That's right. We didn't have to switch distributions. And there is a way to extend that into Grub so it also creates completely bootable snapshot environments. So we can just, from Grub, choose a previous environment and boot completely into it and revert all of the changes that happened on
1: the system. And that's really what we want here, right? I mean, if an update goes wrong, we're trying to stay on top of our updates for security and features. We want the ability to easily roll back if we don't have time to deal with any issues right now. Yeah. And to kind of get that boot environment
0: thing working and the Pac-Man integration, that's where it was sort of necessary just because of some of the assumptions the tools make that's where it was sort of necessary to have
1: boot on the root file system. And it kind of makes sense, too, to have snapshots sort of integrated so we have a full snapshot of basically everything we need for the system, especially the way, by default, how Arch does kernels as compared to, say, Ubuntu with a whole bunch of versions laying (laughs) around.
0: Yeah, and that's why Home is its own subvolume, so we can snapshot that independently, so that's kind of nice. And then all of the data and the container data and all of that is living on ZFS, so you could you could... Completely just unplug the OS drive and plug in a new OS and then just re-import the ZFS pool, which is kind of essentially what we did. But we hadn't actually true-rooted and booted into it yet. So once we got all the sub-volumes created, Wes used the, the Arch setup scripts and um, set up an environment, and we went through and configured FSTab
1: and generated right. that. Arch has also got a handy little bootstrap tarball yep. image you can download that has... Basically, everything you need. It really was great. It was really nice to go through this process again and really
0: just understand how clean the setup is on the server. I've, I've never installed Arch with someone else before. So that was kind of fun. It too. was fun. I haven't either. It actually was a lot of fun. We installed it together. And like our favorite part, I think, was doing FDIS because like, you know, that's old school and setting all those up and like deciding what the volumes are going to be and how to lay that out. That's fun to do with somebody else. But then there's that moment where you got to reboot from the host Ubuntu system, and you have to boot into your handcrafted Arch environment. Did we get it right? Did we get it right?
1: Will it actually boot? We've done everything on the checklist, as, so <laughs> far as I can tell. But, you I mean, can you ever really know until you push the button? No, we just got to find out. So here we go. Um, this will be a nice, lean,
0: mean, just enough Linux installation, if all goes as planned. But... Um, <laughs> I don't know, something about this first boot. It's always like the most special.
1: I made some uh, sous vide pork shoulder this weekend, <laughs> you know. I thought you were going to say something about this. <laughs> you did, huh? Yeah. That's
0: funny. We just picked up some pork shoulder and we are planning to sous vide it. How'd it go? Oh,
1: love, love. Amazing. Amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sous vide tips with Wes Payne. All right. Selecting the built in boot disc. Welcome to Grub. You got Grub. Monitor power save mode at the worst possible moment. Arch Linux grub option comes up. Hit it, Wes. Boom. Loading Linux. Linux. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: those little large details. <laughs> yeah. Okay, right. the default configuration for all software.
0: Yeah. Okay. System D is starting up.
1: Version two forty four.
0: This is getting pretty far. Like I'm feeling pretty good about our op- our potential. Let's see some. Oh, yeah, our ZFS array is lighting up. Look at that. And we're at the boot. Just like that. We're done.
1: Any thoughts, guesses? Do you think ZFS is going to load? I do. Because of
0: those those disks lit up, I think it's going to work. Go ahead and hit it. Let's see. little mod probe ZFS.
1: No problem. There it goes. So that'll just scan it. Now we've we've seen it, and uh, we can actually import it fully online.
0: I think the next step is to set up SSH on this thing and we get ourselves out of this cold garage, I mean server room, and uh, we set this up from the comfort of the studio.
1: That's a great idea.
0: I think in our rush to get out of the cold garage, we may have
1: made a slight mistake. We did not unplug the thumb drive from the back of the server. No. You know, Ubuntu, in fairness, which I always complain about, but it hopefully prompts you that you should do that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) We didn't listen. No, we just want to get the heck out of there. Um, And then we also, during our setup, because we were really just enjoying the simplicity of things, we made a decision for simplicity that ended up costing us several hours, maybe, maybe two and a half hours, if I'm being generous, of time. Once we went back in the living room, we were troubleshooting this issue where we would fire up all of the containers and everything would start. They would know nothing in the logs was weird, but none of them could communicate with the network. But at first, it wasn't even
1: none. You know, there were a couple that would oh, yeah, right. so It wasn't like it was a total failure. It wasn't obvious because a couple did work. The containers were up, the ports were forwarded, but <laughs> we couldn't get to all the services. No,
0: and it was simply because of a decision we had made hours earlier, but in the order of process, we hadn't realized we were making a critical decision that would affect us later on. Well, a couple of hours now in the living room of the studio working from the couch, much more comfortable than the garage. But we ran into a couple of snags, that we didn't quite expect, one which we'll tell you about in just a moment, but the one that we should probably warn you about first of all is some of the troubles we ran into with System D Network D and how it interacts with Docker, which it's documented. We kind of probably could have should have known about it, but didn't it was just because of the kind of the way we built this thing up from the ground up didn't really hit it until it was already an issue.
1: Yeah, we were uh, attracted to systemd networkd because it's so simple. You know, you make one file with, like, three lines. We have DHCP. There's one interface that we care about. It was easy. But then you have to start jumping through hoops to get it to ignore Docker. It tries to basically manage any interface it can get its hands on by default. We've just disabled it and are moving back to DHCP-CD. Yeah,
0: that'll work for now. And it means that our applications and the containers are spinning up successfully, and they're pretty much none the wiser. They have no idea that we just transitioned from Fedora to Arch and just turned them back on again. And the ZFS stuff seems to be working pretty well. Oh, except for that, that one thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we had this kind of moment where we thought, you know, we we gone done mess with stuff and we broke a couple
1: of hard drives. We were expecting this to be easy, right? I mean, that was the whole point of the way we'd set yeah. the system up, is just lift and shift. Right, And but a couple of decisions we had made for simplicity
0: had actually screwed us. Number one, the fact that we use DHCP for our server. However, we, and I have done this for, oh wow, ever? <laughs> um, I mean, a very long time. I set, my, I set my servers via DHCP, but I do it with a reserved address. So everything's mapped to the MAC address. Right. We could
1: just statically assign it and could it would have. work just fine.
0: But I've, I've always preferred to do it that way. So that way, even remotely, I can change the IPs of systems. I mean, systems. it centralizes
1: your admin right there.
0: Yeah. And we chose to use systemd networkd instead of just going with a straightforward DHCP client.
1: And I mean, I'll take the fall for this one because I proposed it. I really like systemd networkd. At least in the other use cases I've used it for. I mean the um, Linux-based router I have at my house, that's all powered basically by Systemd Network D, but it also uses NSpawn. So I've used it, I've used uh, Systemd Network with NSpawn and Podman. Now that I think about it, not a ton with Docker. So I really right. haven't encountered this issue before. It shows up as a new interface to Systemd NetworkD, and it's like, oh, well, let me take care of that for you. And we have a lot of Docker interfaces. (laughs) (laughs) And one of those Docker containers is also managing WireGuard, which needs a a whole bunch of more complications involved. So there are definitely ways you can can tell Systemd NetworkD, hey, don't manage this link. Make sure that forwarding works as we expect. But for our case, because we weren't using any of the features, really, of Systemd NetworkD, besides its DHCP support, dh C D works very well. And then there's that disk issue that I was uh, implying
0: there at the end of that clip. Uh, When we loaded up, it said, hey, three disks are offline. And, you know, the system isn't that old, but it did get really hot in there over the summer despite our best efforts. And we looked at each other and we thought, maybe powering this thing on and off again a few times pops some disks. It wasn't nearly that bad, though. Was it?
1: <laughs> no, I mean they're probably still old disks, and we should yeah. consider upgrading anyway. Yeah, but the pool's fine. The pool is fine. It is fine. All the disks are online.
0: All thirteen drives are actually operating. But I think in part was it
1: because it thought. Um, well, so we were. You know, we were just going through this. It's not like we had a major plan or a, a giant sort of sophisticated Who, write-up. Us? Yeah. I mean, you know, we we may have done this as a sort of... We're the kind of guys to put Arch on the server, Wes. <laughs> I think that's right, enough said. Right, right. And so normally when you're setting up ZFS, you know, i have normally sort of mapped out ahead, like how I'm going to shape the pool, but because we were just sort of importing a pool that already existed... Yeah, we inherited that. Right. And so we just popped over to the ZFS page on the Arch wiki and entered the first command that you saw, and it's like, oh yeah, import the pool, that looks great. We did not remember, and I do usually like to do this, is have ZFS use the disk IDs and not whatever SDX it happens to be assigned. Uh And because we still had that USB drive plugged in, all of our drive names were shifted and and messed up. Well, not all of them. The few that happened to be assigned after that device. So that's why I couldn't find the disks. Mm -hmm. Linux could see them, but... They had new names to CFS. <laughs> yeah.
0: I was I was convinced it was like, oh man, we killed them. Like just turning them on and off. Because one of the things we thought we'd do is we'll do a full shutdown. You know, we'll we'll test this thing, we'll do a full power off and power on. And that's when we thought, let's then check the disk. And that's when we saw that, well, three of them are not responding. Uh, but thankfully it was all
1: resolved. Right. I mean you just had to export and then re-import, telling it like, hey, label these this way, CFS is smart. And on the upside, it, of course, goes and, you know, rechecks, scrubs the data to make sure, like, oh, does this match up with what I think I I should have for this disk and add it back into the pool? It did find some checksum issues on the drive. So we do have some homework. Right. Yeah, it
0: does turn out that um, perhaps it's a good thing we're using ZFS and that bit rot protection because we do have some disks that are kicking errors. Oops. I mean, that's, that's why you use something like ZFS for your important data, right? So, I mean, now I'm feeling good about that decision. So going back to those belt and suspenders, we did decide to use Snapper from OpenSUSE, which is integrated in both as a snapshot that does a snapshot every single week, but also with a Pac-Man wrapper. And this is our kind of insurance. Even though it's a very, very simple base arch install that we'll just update once a week, this kind of integration with snapshots with ButterFS
1: which is baked into the Linux kernel, unlike ZFS, is our insurance policy. Right, so we should be clear, right? The ZFS pool is the existing pool we've inherited all the way from when the system originally ran FreeNAS. And that's great. It it keeps our data safe, as we were just talking about. But RFS, we're just using on the one disk that we have that's actually sitting outside of the server case that we're running the OS on. And that's kind of played in this role, right? Basically, all of our data is on the pool, and we can mix and match OSs as we see fit.
0: Yeah, the one thing we need to change is we need to get the Docker compose files off of the OS disk. Not a big deal. We have a backup of you them. know. I think we might just want to move the home partition over to the pool. Could totally could. Actually, that's a really interesting idea. That it would be that would be a good way to do that. I like having the separation of OS and data though, because it if now we have I think really proven it three times over. We have gone. Initially, this, this pool initially started inside of a FreeNAS Mini. Right. An actual like enclosure with like four disks. And then Alan came along and we said, let's turn this thing up to 11. And we got a super micro enclosure. Great recommendation. I mean, it's been a great server. Super rig. solid. Really been nice. And took those disks in there, plus added all the way up to 13 disks total and took that to a FreeNAS install on a super micro chassis. And then we said, Hey, you know what? Let's go crazy. What's the most ridiculous thing we could do? Let's put Fedora on here. That's when we put it on Fedora. And then we got to the end of that. We said, Well, what's even crazier than Fedora in production? Let's put Arch on here. And this ZFS pool has moved every single time.
1: I think we learned some stuff too about how we wanted to use the box along the way, you know, because when we switch over to Fedora, we talked about how we discovered that it was it was more useful to us. And I think that helped shape why pick Arch. Because it turns out we're doing everything in containers besides like cockpit and admin stuff. Mm-hmm. So we don't need a lot in the OS.
0: Yeah. As a FreeNAS storage box, it was a storage appliance that we dumped files on. When we moved to Fedora, we expanded the applications that we could run on it. We really kind of started enjoying using the system. We realized, this thing's got 24 cores. Like, this is insane. Like, we can use this for encoding. It doesn't have to just be a file server. And it changed the way we use the hardware fundamentally. And so this go-around, we had all of that kind of experience of, now, well, this is really, like you're saying, this is how we use the machine now. This is how we use it. And so this super simple core approach... I think is the key to a long-term sustainable arch install. So we're gonna we're gonna set ourselves a reminder to check in on this box and let you know how it's doing because obviously the real the real like I don't want to say proof in the pudding because you know you know what I'm saying you know what I'm saying the uh, real the I real s- I like, suspect that you'll be curious to see how this is working out for us in uh, well yeah because like months. I can say it's been great for uh, 24 hours but the real proof will be in the long term. I don't know, like six months from now. We'll set, we'll, we'll talk about it after, after the show and figure out when's a good check-in date. Probably sooner than six months. Cause it could go all wrong in 90 days for all I know. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. We'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of updates. I mean, it's a lot. I've been very pleased with the tooling we've adopted. And that was part of the reason to choose ButterFS, right? Is that, I mean, uh, Canonical's working on things like Zsys, but right now, OpenSUSE and, you know, the integration with Snapper and YAS, that's kind of the state of the art on the Linux side of things. I know, you know, the BSDs have very neat solutions here too. We wanted that goodness, and using ButterFS, at least on our, you know, just single no RAID or anything, right on the root drive, it's been so easy. mm mm-hmm. I think I'll, I'll probably replicate that on my laptops. Anytime we make a change, you know, you just, you run Pac-Man, and you get two snapshots before and after. I've been hard on ButterFS, Wes, but
0: I'm not, I'm not expecting a lot here. I'm not trying to do a RAID 6, or I'm not trying to do anything fancy, it's just a super simple one disk install. We also don't care about the data. <laughs>
1: I mean, we can't I trying live. a little
0: bit. Wes, I was trying to make that a nice thing. Oh. I was trying to make that like a, Chris says something nice about ButterFS. And you just sort of like, yeah, but it's also because you don't care about the data, which just sort of undercuts the whole sincerity of it. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about something that I think that uh, was kind of our key to success because this did end up going longer, but we kind of also knew when to call it a night because before we started, and credit goes to you, Wes, you said, all right, before we start, What's our, what's our benchmark of success? When have we successfully converted this thing to a production server again? And so we took a hot couple of minutes before we started deleting partitions and we said to ourselves, all right, when it is capable of running all of the applications, the current production server runs, when it is capable of supporting WireGuard connections with mm. our existing keys. Yeah, that's pretty important. Because we didn't want to have to force all of the team to... We
1: just got that working nicely. Yeah, we
0: just got all their keys out there and everybody, yeah. Um, and also, we wanted to end with something that this system could do that the previous system couldn't do. And that was where we integrated Snapper with Grub, with Pac-Man, and on a weekly basis. And that was something I asked you, is like, are we going to like blow out all of our disk space? um by using snapshots but i guess snapper actually shipped with some pretty sensible
1: defaults right i mean you can go ad- adjust settings and tunings to to say how many how often should you take snapshots and then how long should you let them hang around and there's just some systemd services you can enable to set up the automatic prune job hmm not so bad
0: And we thought, really, for something we're not using that often from at a base OS level, once a week is enough. Right, I mean, we've Plus every package
1: transaction. That's it. That's the majority of system changes we'll be making. And then some snapshots around to capture anything else we might mess with. You know, configuration and Etsy, for example. Yeah, because it's,
0: I mean, literally, it's NetData, Samba, and Cockpit. Those are the three applications we have installed.
1: But it's just admin stuff.
0: I really consider SSH almost like part of the system, right? (laughs) I really do. Like, as far as, like, we went out and installed something cockpit, and net data. Well, you we have to install the SSH
1: package.
0: Yes, okay, fine,
1: fine, all right.
0: Yeah, okay, well, I'll count it, four. We've installed four applications. But really,
1: that's it. It's just, it's just admin stuff we need on the box for right. you know, ease of life stuff to monitor what's going on.
0: It's truly a fundamentally simple system. There's nothing really all that fancy other than the only kind of edge casey thing is the ZFS DKMS stuff. And that's why I thought it was pretty important We didn't use ZFS on root. We went butterFS, so that way the system would at least boot if something went sideways. Yes,
1: it's just it's just simpler, right? Worst case, I mean, we we still have some outage issues because the applications don't come online. But (laughs) we've got we've got our environment set up to actually deal with that in in an easy way. We can at
0: least log into the machine and begin to troubleshoot and rebuild those DKMS modules and get the system
1: back online. Something I'll need to find for the show notes, and this is a little reminder to myself here. There's a handy little script because we have Docker sitting on top of ZFS, which also made this so easy. Docker has a ZFS driver, and it meant that all the Docker stuff from our previous install was already on the pool. So once we Mm -hmm. loaded Docker back up on the system, it just found all of its old containers exactly like it needed. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, it was just pick up and run. But as a result, you need your ZFS pool online before you can have your Docker daemon start. So there is a handy little systemd service that just sort of acts as a shim and doesn't start Docker until your ZFS pool is actually online. Oh, okay. And that's one thing we did not have on our Fedora setup.
0: Yeah, no, that did cause problems. That did cause problems. So that's, I feel like, again, lessons learned on this build. And then taking what you and I know about managing arch boxes and applying it to a server, I think we're pretty good. I will say when I got
1: in this morning, I did run updates on the server, so.
0: <laughs> That's going to be it. Like, we talked about, do we want to automate the updates? And we both decided, even with snapshots, probably not. Both from, like, a storage use standpoint, but also... Um, Just to be careful for a while,
1: which maybe something we'll try. Maybe if we get a few months into this and everything's fine, maybe we'll try it. There is the added benefit of if we have to do updates, we'll have to at least log into the system, and that's sort of an incentive to check around on things.
0: I would like to know, I'm sure there must be other crazy pants people out in the audience that are running Arch on a server. Have you automated the updates? Have you found a way, like, can you have it, like, ping a Slack channel What are
1: you doing? How are you doing that part of it? I'd be curious if anyone's building custom arch images out there, too, because that would be my approach, probably, is to set up a a job to bake a new image and then just have the server, you know, reboot into it. Yeah, Oh. So how would you, where would
0: you, you would build that somewhere safe, test it, and then deploy to the box, and then just say, next time you reboot, tell Grub, next time you boot, boot into this instance? Right. Like a partition that just, the image gets expanded onto, Sort of using, like, your own home-baked OS tree approach. Exactly. Huh. That's a lot of work to maintain one arch box, but I could totally
1: see the value if you had, like, a whole rack of them. Right, and then you could, the testing would matter more, and you'd, you'd really want to be sure before you pushed down.
0: Yeah, I feel like, really, almost something, just imagine, picture it, West Sicily, 1987. Uh, uh, the Arche Day. <laughs> Everybody does. A Slack message comes in that says, in 24 hours, I'm auto-installing these packages.
1: But of course, by then, there'd be more packages. You know, there are (laughs) tools that'll, you know, help scrape the Arch website, check for things. You can probably tie those things together. If there's not been a blog post since the last update on the Arch page, just install them. Otherwise, prompt for my approval. Somebody must have solved this. Somebody must have.
0: Um, And so I thought I'd put the... uh, I'd put the question out to the audience, LinuxUnplug.com slash contact, if this is something you've got an idea on how to just solve. Just tell us the weird ways you're abusing Arch. That's what we want to know. It's been a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. And I think if we had thought about the DHCP system, D-network D thing ahead of time. Yeah, it was just an
1: instinct of like, the last time I used this tool, I liked it a lot, so why don't we use it? I think we would have had this thing in like two, three hours. Once that was done, really, the, the dream of just being able to move the containers over, it worked yeah. great. Yeah, it really was pretty awesome. I will say also it was just installing Arch is a, is just a dream and it, I love understanding all the pieces of the system. It does constantly give you moments of like, oh right, yep, gotta get that and that. Yes. But that's a good reminder of all the implicit dependencies you have on pieces of the other operating system. I think for you, ad user was a good example of that. I've I I thought that was a I didn't realize that was a Debian
0: thing. Yeah, I went to go ad user and I'm like, what do you mean you don't have ad user? What is this? you like, it's in the AUR. <laughs> I'm not installing it. It's fine. Also, pff, nano. I mean. This is 2019. I think we're all civilized here. Let's install Nano in the I base we image. We need
1: to just ship the s code
0: instead, <laughs> or at least Vim for heaven's sake.
1: Please.
0: <laughs> Watching West try to use a system without Vim is painful. It's very painful. It's just it's ingrained in my fingers. <laughs> it's literally every single time he forgets. He never remembers that Vim is not installed. <laughs> how i edit <laughs> all right well uh richard wrote in on some arch update tips he says you can slowly apply back patches to arch linux and not apply months worth at a single time if you edit uh, a repo to a specific date say two weeks out then you can run the update against that and he gives us an example which we'll have linked in the show notes after you set that you save an exit and you update the system via pac-man and it will
1: only go back to that date range this is clever I never knew about this. No, and it makes sense though. You can, I mean, you'll still have breakage. You have to progress with the updates, but that should make it easier to deal with sort of one thing at a time. So you could go back and,
0: and, and if you're six months back, you go all six, you just one month at a time. (laughs) Wow. He says, once you're caught up, restore your original pacman.com file to normal without the date ranges in there and you're good to go. You just keep updating from there, from there word forward. Also, A note for the nervous updater, the program Informant, which is in the AUR, prevents you from upgrading if there is a fresh Arch news item that you have not yet read since the last time you ran updates. You might want that for your uh, Manjaro box. His base Arch image is still from the Antigros install he did back during our Arch challenge, which was March 29th, 2016.
1: Wow.
0: (laughs) And he's kept it running ever since. Let's hope that's the future of our server. No kidding. I mean, you and I were kind of joking. We were like, you know, this took us about five hours or so, six, I don't know, whatever, to set up. But if we were the types to leave something uh, and not fix something that isn't broken. Which, I mean,
1: fingers crossed, maybe someday we'll become those people. (laughs) This could be our forever install. It's our forever it could, server, it Wes. It could. I mean, I like it right now. Wes, we built a
0: little forever server. Aww. And um, it's working, which there were moments when it wasn't. When we first started the containers and the networking wasn't work, I thought we had leaped too far. And I was legitimately concerned that I would never see my pillow again. But thankfully, we figured it out pretty quick while Wes figured it out, really. I read forum posts and suggested different things while Wes ignored me and fixed it. So that worked out pretty well. <laughs> What matters is that we fixed it. <laughs> yeah, really. Anybody in the uh, virtual lug there running um, Arch on their uh, production system?
1: Yep, been running it about since April now.
0: Oh, really? On a server or on a workstation?
1: Uh, it's on my XPS 13, and it's sure. also running ButterFS, actually. it's uh, I did a bit of an experiment, and it's gone quite well.
0: Oh. Yeah. I mean, if somebody installs a system on Arch, they've got to tell you about it. So that's why, that's why this podcast exists today. Amen. It, it, we are um, completing the circle of meme life right there. I acknowledge that. Brent, I know you're on uh, Arch as your daily production system. What did you use for your VPS for WireGuard?
2: That's something I have yet to solve. Really? <laughs> so I didn't actually get WireGuard working on my laptop because uh, I made a, a subtle mistake when I installed it during the Antergos challenge that you gave a long time ago, which was to put too small of a system partition. So I'm having a hard time upgrading anything because i'm out of space there and it's a real disaster so um it didn't quite work for me
0: oh we could help with that we so because in this in this process we realized that we had made boot uh, its own dedicated two gigabyte partition and then realized well crap we don't need that it needs to be part of our root partition and then like what are we going to do with this two gigs like there's there are a lot of options. There's some fancy dancing you can do. As long as you're willing to
1: wait for a Gpart to drag bytes around.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I admit that my partition is also encrypted, so that should add an extra level <laughs> of Add a boy, a boy. Got to learn
0: sometime. <laughs> Tell you what, we need to have a laptop support week where the three of us get together. I reload to Arch, you reload your box, Wes, and we help uh, Brent out with his partitioning scheme.
2: Alex really tried to help me uh, do a fresh arch install, and I um, didn't finish it. So sorry, Alex, but I'll get there. I'll get there. (laughs) The
0: problem is, there's work to be done, and that system is functional. It's just tight on space, right? It's just and hard to update, but it's still working. I've been there. Yeah, it sounds like you've
2: been there.
0: <laughs> I've been there. I'm really hoping we don't put the server in that position. I feel like this minimum viable Linux thing, just enough Linux, is the key to success here. What are we going to update on that box that's going to break?
1: There's not a lot. Not I mean, I lot. think the biggest thing, it will be you know, kernel updates, but yeah. we've got snapshots for that.
0: Yep, and we can just boot into the old environment or boot into the old kernel or whatever because the host operating system will still load regardless. And so that's from there it's just minutes to resolve an issue. And that's I think both you and I felt a lot more comfortable managing a Linux box versus a FreeNAS box simply because of this exact reason. If we have to SSH into the host we're good to go. No problem. Yes. We're comfortable there.
1: And I mean, it just lowers the you know the debug cycle. It's not that we mind having to fix occasional problems, but if it's a ten minute thing versus like an hour thing, and I mean, it's a it's a real server build. It's not fast to boot up. So every time you have to mess with trying to reboot and test something, yeah, all the it's controllers, a long, long wait. That, it's just everything's slow on booting a server. It's but really if you've slow. already booted, and you just need to test if you can load a module, yeah, that's fast. Yep.
0: Um. So we're going to do this so you don't have to. So don't do this at home. You should, you know, probably use Ubuntu LTS or a CentOS something. You know? I think I am going to rebuild my router on Arch again. I know. I was thinking it would be really nice to run those Raspberry Pi 4s with Arch. Oh. And AUR. You know, I I appreciate flat pack snaps and app images and RPMs and DEBs and uh, TARS and all of that. But, uh oh, man, one package manager to rule it all. One and? package manager to install a package, to update my packages. It's just so nice. Like, uh, watching you, legitimately, I'm laughing at you hunt around on Microsoft site trying to get the Teams dab. Meanwhile, I've just, I literally <laughs> Tries and Dash-S Teams. And yes. just hit enter, and it just goes out and
1: down, installs it. And what I love about it is it's so simple, right? Like, I mean, you yeah. can have these complicated managers that do a lot for you, uh-huh. but at the same time, I mean, it, make package is great. The package config files you can man, mess with it. They even prompt you: Do you want to make any changes to this mm-hmm. thing? So it's so accessible because it's like radically simple.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I think I'm gonna enjoy that a
1: lot. Anyways, um, well, we'll come back if this blows
0: up on our face. Well, we'll tell you about it. Yeah, you'll hear about. It. But we'll check back in. We have obviously we haven't determined to win yet, but uh, we'll powwow after the show. Maybe let us know. Yeah, let us know what you'd like. That's a great idea. Look at you, Wes, jupiterbroadcastingcom slash telegram or uh, linuxunplugged.com slash contact, like uh, Richard did here with his update trick on setting the repo dates back. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Like I said, we'll have examples linked in the show notes if you want to check that out. Well, Mr. Payne, is there any other bits of business we need to attend to on today's Unplugged program? No, I mean, maybe I'll just update the server
1: again real quick. I don't
0: know. <laughs> yeah, it's like a fidget spinner. You know, you just, when you feel bored, you just go do a quick update on the old server. We right already there. got a snapper update this morning. <laughs> Did we really? Yeah. Wow, look at that. Isn't that funny? Something that's really kind of you think of as an OpenSUSE thing. And here we are, all the way over here in Archland using it. I just love Hopefully open that source. that
1: update didn't break our update protection. <laughs> Guess we'll find out.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. You know, it is getting towards the end of the year. So that means our predictions episode. We've got some special stuff planned. So please join us live because there's so much more to participate in, but also just sit back and enjoy probably a whole nother show's worth over at jblive.tv. We do it on a Tuesday at noon Pacific. You get that converted over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. I'm also going to give a personal plug to my buddies over at User Air. Latest episode was so great. So funny. User Air is so fun. Check it out. Air.show. Really, really great. And Brent, another fantastic brunch with Mr. Popey over at extras.show and Wes Payne over at techsnap.systems. And this here humble podcast will be right back here next Tuesday. No, Wes, no matter how much we disclaim that people should not do this at home, we're going to get
1: a lot of crap for installing Arch on a server. I mean, I think our lawyers advised us to read a (laughs) long
0: legal spiel about liability. The uh, Linux Unplugged program does not endorse running your home server on a rolling distribution.
1: (laughs) And will not be held liable for any package upgrades that fail. (laughs) That'd be really funny if we actually were in that situation, and also horrible. Uh, JB we will titles. Fixed your server, but it's 500 an hour.
0: Oh, yeah. A little, a little side biz right there. A little side hustle. Um, Thank you, Mumble Room, for being here today. I really do appreciate everybody showing up at the new time. It's still kind of new. It's still thank you new. for
1: joining us. Yeah. It's still
0: new to us. Yeah. Very new. So very much a big thank you for being here. Appreciate you guys. And appreciate you live streamers, too. Man, you know what? It's so much fun live. While I'm thinking about it, Wes, you know who else I appreciate? People who download the podcast, too. Yeah. You. Appreciate you. Not Joe Resington, though.